Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 118 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Singapore drama episode of the SLS Cast because the uh, latest half-hour-long running drama series in Singapore that has already produced 270 episodes since October of 2014 is a drama series called 118, inexplicably. It's simply a show that offers light-hearted social commentary on current topics with relatable characters and incidents. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, with that little bit of Singapore television knowledge, I, of course, am the ever-intrepid Matt. And coming to us from the driver's seat of the Turaco, hey. Bizarre creation of Sony that never made it to the market is, of course... Oh, uh, Tim, a, a Taraco. Now, that sounds like something you can go and purchase at a Taco Bell. A Taraco. No, no, you cannot. <laughs> you cannot. It is the Taraco is a mini plastic VW camper van. It sat on vinyl records and played the track through its speaker as it drove around the record. I don't understand this product. Hey, look, <laughs> I, I didn't make it. Your company made it. Yeah, and I, just, I, I, it sounds like nobody else understood the product either. It's true. Again, it never made it to market. But I just, you know, I think the idea of you in the driver's seat of a Chiraco on the 405 is just fun. You know, so. Yeah. I'm going on to 405 in my Chiraco. <laughs> oh, man, Matt. Uh, I can smell the the aromas of, of barbecue wafting through the microphone into my nostrils. You should, and you should also have a heavy dose of alcohol as well. Well, can you hear my ice ball rattling in my glass? Yes, I can. I heard it was a little harder to hear the slurp this week, but uh, you've, you have managed to uh, still execute flawlessly. Thank you, thank you. I'm enjoying a little bit of a bourbon rye whiskey, Bullet. Rye whiskey. I love bullet rye. I had some two Fridays ago. I had several shots of it. Have you have you been like still drinking it until today? No, no, no. Tonight's excursion was uh, I have a beer guy now. I, I never had a beer guy before, it, but I have a beer guy now. Why do you so need I a beer guy? Beer. I mean it's, you might need a weed guy, but you don't need a beer guy. When it's free? You can use a beer guy. Okay. Everybody could use a beer guy. So, yeah, I uh, they, they apparently um, had this wonderful um, stuff. It's called uh, Snowdrift Vanilla Porter. And I was able to get my hands on some, and apparently I'm getting another case of it tomorrow. Which is good, because I'm kind of out. Um I've had a, you know, long weekend, lots of stuff going on, been really busy the last few days, and I decided to do some grilling tonight, and so I was grilling up steaks, 
Uh, did just a ba- basic sirloin. I didn't do my specialty steak, so just a basic top sirloin. Uh, but it was the full flank of the top sirloin, so, you know, it actually makes like three steaks on its own. Uh, and then I did four really super ultra-thick pork chops, and then I did also some uh, marinated turkey tenderloin. And uh, I grilled that, and then I do a, but I do a slow roasted grilling uh, with my nice charcoal grill, so it takes about an hour and a half. For it to all really get going, and I have a, uh, I use a Montreal steak seasoning rub on my a, can, a uh, Canadian steak seasoning. Oh yeah, yes. Well, I mean, it doesn't come from Canada. I imagine the original uh, spice recipe came from Canada. <laughs> it is known as Montreal. So you, you don't import seasoning. your spices from the Canadian border across no, the Canadian no. border. No, I, I, unless McCormick's is Canadian, then you know that's what's up but um yeah so i do all that and uh we had a wonderful smorgasbord we had a great uh walnut strawberry vinaigrette salad to go with it some broccoli and everything and of course now we have a ton of leftovers so we'll be doing amazing turkey sandwiches and uh some more pork chops later on and everything but yeah but because it was grilling time and i really needed to uh you know Take it easy, I guess. I kicked back and started working on these Snowdrift Vanilla Porters. And um, I definitely made it through, like, nine of them. So, you know, that's one of the many things I miss about living in Texas is that it doesn't matter what time of the year it is. You can walk out your door and you can smell uh, you, you can smell the, the aromas of steak or brisket cooking in the smoker, or smoking in the smoker, I guess. Out here, that is not the case in Los Angeles. You know, maybe uh, once or twice during the summer, you know, a random neighbor will be grilling or cooking something because, uh, unfortunately, there aren't any balconies out here uh, in the apartments in Brighton, Hollywood. And normally, people who have balconies, you can't even cook here. And unfortunately, there are people out here that do not like the smells uh, or the aromas of mesquite wood chips or a beautifully, you know, moist, succulent, seasoned pork roast. I I feel so terrible. I really do feel bad. But I I mean, and I don't mean this impolitely or anything. I'm not trying to, you know, dig on California in any kind of stereotypical way. But like for me, I'm a big fan of the charcoal grill. And, and I don't use lighter fluid. I use charcoal starters because why the hell would you? That, that's why people don't like charcoal grilling is because it tastes like lighter fluid. So I use charcoal starters. But, I mean, do they, like, really kind of harp on, like, oh, it's too much smoke and too much pollution and stuff And if you're using charcoal grills and everything like that out there? Well, okay. Well, if it was because it was it was due to pollution, okay, fine. It would be, like, another California L.A. cork or whatever. But these people are, like, allergic to barbecue. It is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. That's terrible. Yeah, these are the same people that go to In-N-Out. It's a sad day for Tim, living in uh, living in Hollywood during the summertime. But luckily there are some really good... Actually, uh, it seems like I've come across more Texas barbecue joints than any other barbecue joints out here, so... Luckily, I do have the restaurants I can venture off to. Well, that is at least... At least you have refuge that you can take. So, so that is good. And it's funny because like a lot of these Texas barbecue places... And, and they're, they'll go out of their way so that in their front window... They'll put 
bluebell and a a bluebell sign and they'll have a neon shiner box sign in hopes to lure people in that have come here from the south so (laughs) i appreciate that it makes my yelp searching go by a lot quicker outstanding and that's all that really matters yeah yeah the yelp search yeah shiner bach bluebell ice cream and barbecue oh and yelp searches yeah i guess that's right yeah so, have you been having any kind of fun the, the, since since we last spoke? Here we are on the 9th of March. We're we're nearing the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March. No. Uh, you had the fun this week with the barbecue. I mean, I found a Mexican restaurant. That was the excitement of this past week. I found a great Mexican food place. And believe it or not, it's quite difficult to find a great standard Mexican food joint. To where you can go and, and, and enjoy delicious chicken fingers at a reasonable price. Not chicken fingers. Really? Chicken fajitas at a reasonable price. I would See, I would think that much like Tex-Mex here in Texas, right? I mean, you would almost think it's like a dime a dozen. Like, it's really easy to find a Tex-Mex joint. Uh, no, nece- no, I mean, not necessarily the greatest or whatever, but I mean, you can find Tex-Mex all around. You would think in... L.A. especially, it would be extremely easy. Like, you should be able to throw a rock. It's like walking outside and going, oh, look, here's a sidewalk. Oh, look, here's a Mexican restaurant. Well, in in a way, it's kind of like uh, with barbecue out here. Barbecue, it's difficult to find, uh, sh- like, strictly a Texas barbecue place. Like, they try mm-hmm. to incorporate the uh, the Carolinas barbecue, where I think it's more of like like a sweet taste to it. Than what we would consider like like what our barbecue sauce is, uh, then you have the barbecue from wherever where it's more tangy, and so it's kind of like a uh, depending on where you go, of course, it's more of like a fusion of different types of barbecue from all over the U.S. And with Mexican right. food, it's quite different. In Texas, we have Tex-Mex. In California, we have Mex-Mex, and people consider Mex-Mex to be more authentic. I don't think well, it so. Is. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it I, is. It has been my experience that um, outside of the Baja Peninsula uh, proper, the the further you go into Mexico, the blander the food gets, and that infusion of the Tex-Mex style really makes a more flavorful choice than, say, the Mex-Mex style of an of a truly authentic Mexican food. Now, that's not to say you can't get great Mexican food, but it, it has just been in my experience that that's usually how it goes. Sure, and because it's uh, Mex-Mex, they up the charge for a burrito or tacos. And so out here, if like if you want to get a good taco, there are, there's a really good taco truck out here, like a really good taco truck. And unfortunately, if you want to go to a good Mexican restaurant, I have to go to Toluca Lake. So <laughs> that's where I will be for now on for my Mexican food. Yes, exciting stuff, I know. So I guess do we want to try and get to news-like uh, items? Of the weird? Don't you have a news of the weird? Yes, like I to? do actually. I do have some news of the weird before we get to our news-like information to modify our friends over at We're Not Here to Please You. Um, yeah, so from MSN.com. Courtesy of Daniela Galarza. Applebee's customer burned by fajitas while praying, but he can't sue. (laughs) 
opening sentence. When religion gets litigious. Uh, I can still read. Yay. Uh, an Applebee's customer who was burned while praying over his plate of sizzling fajitas has been told he cannot sue the chain. A New Jersey appellate court upheld the decision of a lower court, which had dismissed the case in 2010, according to the AP. Uh, the, a gentleman by the name of Hiram Jimenez originally sought damages because he sustained burns immediately upon bowing his head over the food to pray. He told the court that he, quote, bowed his head, then heard a loud sizzle, followed by a grease pop. He then felt a burning sensation in his left eye and on his face, end quote there. He then said that he panicked and accidentally knocked the food into his lap, causing more burns. The AP writes that the burns did not cause scarring. Um, yeah. So here's the deal. When fajitas are brought to the table at Applebee's, it's customary for the server to warn diners about the hot skillet. The meat and vegetables are served in a cast iron pan, which is nestled into a wooden plate and often has a cloth pot holder for protection. The man claimed that his server did not warn him about the temperature of the dish, but the lower court wrote, quote, the risk of injury was foreseeable since the plate of food, as described by plaintiff, was sizzling, smoking, end quote, real hot, end all quotes. Um, I just, I mean, I get the whole idea of praying, if that's what you're into. Uh, you know, we grew up with praying before you eat. Uh, you know, our kids like to do the whole, uh, you know, come Lord Jesus thing that, that is fun with the Lutherans and whatnot. But why the hell are you bowing your head over a plate of sizzling feet? How, I mean, and that's the problem with praying while trying to cool your food, because you're just constantly <laughs> blowing hot air. Your food just won't chill. I'm telling you, I, you know, I, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. Oh, where was this at again? Uh, it, it was a New Jersey appellate court, so I'm assuming that this was uh, in the New Jersey area. So, okay, so since you're feeling a little good right now, Matt, what would be your mm. impression of a new of this New Jersey citizen burning the shit out of their hand and mouth? I'm I see. I'm not sure exactly how it would go because it seems we have a a. Very Hispanic-sounding name, but from New Jersey. So I'm not sure exactly where the Jersey accent would cross over with a potential Hispanic accent. And I, I'm left very confused. This whole thing is confusing, and maybe that's why he bowed his head over the 500-degree cast-iron plate to begin with. I don't know. <sighs> but, yeah. Good times. Indeed. In Applebee's. <laughs> In Applebee's of all things, too. Speaking of Mexican food. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, the complete opposite of Mexican food is Applebee's. Yes. That's right. It, now, what if it was at the Sizzler? Would that, you know, would that have been an extra count against her? It's like, you are going to a place called the Sizzler. 
I'm telling yeah. you what, maybe we could call Applebee's white mechs. We have Tex mechs, and then there's Mex mechs. Maybe we can have white mechs. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe that's too white. Old and white mechs. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Well, I guess without further ado, shall we get to the news, sir? Yes, sir. All right. Here we go, folks. It is the news. <laughs> Yes, the news. And first up for the news, we actually have a little bit of email. And, of course, you can always write to us at the show at slscast.com. Uh, we have a new follower on Twitter. This is a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Hubbard, at Jeremy Hubbard. Uh, th- we have uh, someone who is actually very important following us now. This is... Uh, His description reads as follows, at KDVR, Fox 31, hashtag Denver, 5 and 9 p.m. anchor. Husband, dad, Western Slope native, Glenwood Springs, hashtag Colorado, hashtag 14er, lover, tweeting about hashtag news and other strange stuff. He's a tweener lover? A 14er lover. I don't know what that means. I assume that if... (laughs) You are in Colorado. You understand what that means. So I, I apologize, uh, Jeremy, if I have somehow um, sullied the reputation of 14 or lovers by not quite understanding what that is. Um, I do have some family who lives out there, so maybe I'll ask him about that and get a little clarification. But in all seriousness... Jeremy Hubbard, at Jeremy Hubbard, thank you for following us at the SLS cast. And because I've done a lot of talking, um, and some of it was technically news, you can do the first real news story. What? The first news story? Well, I guess I will. So my first piece of news is a death. And this is somebody that has relatively gone, uh, nobody's really talked about this passing, and I'm kind of surprised by it. Honestly, I would not have known about this passing if I wasn't catching up on my Leonard Nimoy movies. I haven't watched Star Trek Three, Search for Spock, and Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home in a good 10 years or so, so I wanted to brush up on that this past weekend, and I did. And as I was watching the credits, you know, I noticed written by Harv Bennett. I was like, oh, okay, this was interesting. And I was doing some, like, stuff on uh, online, like, look at, like doing a little bit of research on the Star Trek movies and the writing process and the production process. And I found out that Harv Bennett, one of the writers and producers, passed away. He was born in 1930 in Chicago, Illinois. He passed away February 25th, 2015, in Medford, Oregon, at the age of 84 years old. And February 25th is just five days after... Uh, Leonard Nimoy's passing, uh, which is interesting and equally pretty sad. Now, the movies that he is most known for writing, he did the story for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He wrote The Search for Spock. He also was in charge of the story as well as the screenplay for The Voyage Home. He, well, he did the story for The Final Frontier, though that is one of the most loathed of the Star Trek movies. 
And that's pretty much it on the Star Trek front. Uh, however, he did develop for TV the Mod Squad television show, which ran from 1968 to 1973. He also wrote a couple episodes between 1968 and 1971. Uh, let's see here. He worked on The Invisible Man. He developed it as well as created it. He worked on The Gemini Man. But one thing that took me back to my childhood was this little show called Invasion America, which came out in 1998. And he developed and wrote two of these episodes, uh, which I thought was very interesting. For those of you who don't remember the cartoon Invasion of America, it was about a... And I'm reading this from IMDb because... I remember it, but this might give you more detail as to what it was about. So maybe somebody out there will know what I'm talking about so we can have a fucking conversation about this cartoon. Because nobody I've talked to remember this cartoon. But I'm reading the IMDb synopsis here. And this is written by Scott Ward. And it says that a young crossbreed human and alien fights to keep both of his worlds from going to war. His father, an alien, emperor, and his mother, a human, are both missing. And the young man has to discover who his friends and enemies really are. R.I.P. Harv Bennett passed away five days after Spock. That is very sad. Indeed. And I am glad that you picked that one up there, Tim. Well done. Uh, Let's see. Coming up from me, we've got from HollywoodReporter.com. Courtesy of Boris Kitt. Disney's Beauty and the Beast, casting Dan Stevens as the Beast. Yes, this was an exclusive for them. Dan Stevens, the breakout actor of Downton Abbey and last year's cult action movie The Guest, is in negotiations to play Beast Prince in Disney's live-action retelling of Beauty and the Beast, The Hollywood Reporter has learned. Stevens will join Emma Watson, who is playing Belle, the beauty in the title, and, bonus, Luke Evans is in talks to play the villain Gaston. So we now now we now have the information that Dan Stevens be playing the Beast and Luke Evans will be playing Gaston. How much fun is that? Uh, Beauty contains Disney's uh, continues Disney's plan of taking some of its animated classics and brushing them up for a 21st century live action makeover. Cinderella, which also features mostly British leads, is the latest. Uh, it opens March 13th and is generating great reviews. Uh, I do think it is slightly ironic that when it's animated, they have to use American people. But the moment that it goes live action, they have to use British people. For a French fairy tale. But I guess that's neither here nor there. I guess Marion Cotillard was unavailable. <laughs> Uh, indeed. Uh, as a bonus, though, while the studio has not confirmed if the retelling is a musical, when Watson was cast in January, she implied it was in a Facebook post. Quote, It was such a big part of my growing up, it almost feels surreal that I'll get to dance to be our guest and sing something there. Time to start some singing lessons. End quote. Um, what do you think? Good casting decisions for Dan Stevens and Luke Evans, sir? Uh, I wouldn't be one to comment on that because I don't think we really need a live-action version of this movie. Because, for those of you who do not remember, Beauty and the Beast, the animated film, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture when it came out. 
I, I think that pretty much shows that it can stand on its own. So I'm still in the camp of, you know, we don't need this movie. Well, I guess we'll have a better, uh, we'll have a better idea of what we're in for. Um, uh, spoiler alert for the end of the show. Um, next week, uh, we're going to be covering Cinderella. So we'll be seeing it this weekend. And I guess we'll have a better idea of how good an idea these things are. Indeed. All right. What else do you got, sir? I will not be talking about how they're planning on doing two different Ghostbusters movies. One with Kristen Wiig and, uh, and, and all those ladies are going to be in it. But Channing Tatum is supposed to be heading his own Ghostbusters movie as well. I found that out today. That's exciting. But I'm not going to talk about it. From the ColumbusDispatch.com. This is a totally different story here. Substitute teacher who showed graphic movie to classes sentenced to 90 days in jail. Yes, this is probably something that would have qualified for news of the weird, but you know what? It works here. And it says this, quote, A Franklin County judge criticized Columbus City Schools on Wednesday for putting Spanish language classes at East High School in the hands of a long-term substitute who didn't know Spanish and showed students a movie containing graphic sex and violence. Quote, this is what happens when you put a teacher in a class that she cannot teach. End quote. Common pleas Judge Charles A. Schneider said before sentencing the former substitute to 90 days in jail. Quote, they put a permanent substitute in a high school Spanish class who can't speak Spanish at all. Here we are with the Columbus Public Schools telling us what wonderful things they are doing. End quote. Sheila Kearns, 58 years old, was convicted in January for four counts of disseminating matter harmful to juveniles, all low-level felony offenses. Schneider placed her on probation for three years, but made the jail time a condition of her probation. He ordered her to report to the county jail on April 10th, but said he will delay the sentence if she appeals her conviction, which her attorney said she plans to do. Now, what movie would be the one in question here? That would be this one right here. Kearns of Miller Avenue on the South Side told police that she showed the movie The ABCs of Death to her classes on April 11th, 2013 without reviewing it in advance. She told a detective that she had her back to the screen and never turned around to watch the movie as it played for five separate classes throughout the day. Schneider told Kearns on Wednesday that her claim is, quote, unconscionable. There's no way you'll persuade me that's what happened, end quote. And apparently the judge was, quote, shocked and disappointed, end all quotes. So I don't know what is more baffling, that she showed this movie to her Spanish class, or the fact that this 58-year-old woman knew to choose this movie <laughs> to show to her Spanish class. So I, I really don't understand how this all works out. It's like, why did you choose that movie out of any other movies that you could have chosen? Pan's Labyrinth would have worked for this. That, that would have made more sense. I mean... I, I, think, I think the real question is, did she have the Spanish subtitles running? That's... That's the real question. Well, apparently there are parts of the show of the movie that are in Spanish because it's it's coming from Spain or you know wherever else. So, True. Did we did cover that one? We did we? Uh, part two. Oh, okay. Okay. 
That's right. So she didn't have the decency to show her class the best one. She showed her the first one. Well, maybe she's a completionist, and she was hoping to do it the following week. Maybe. I mean, that or I think her (laughs) students just fell asleep, so they didn't really get to watch all the naughty bits that happens throughout the movie. All right. Well, let's see here. From, uh, oh, goodness gracious. From JustJared.com. I don't even know how the hell I came across this one, but whatever, I did. Uh, Liam Hemsworth and Jeff Goldblum confirmed for Independence Day 2. Liam Hemsworth has just been confirmed to star in the upcoming film Independence Day 2. Quote, excited to officially announce at Liam Hemsworth and hashtag Jeff Goldblum as the next two pieces of the hashtag Independence Day sequel. End quote. The film's director, Roland Emmerich, wrote on Twitter. This news comes right after Jesse Usher was announced as the lead for the movie, which hits theaters on June 24th. 2016. So that's interesting. I mean, because when I think of people who should replace Will Smith, Liam Hemsworth immediately comes to mind. I every single time. I'm quite frankly, they're not going to do a fresh Prince of Bel Air reboot with Liam Hemsworth sitting there going on about in West Philadelphia, born and raised, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, nothing? Fine. It wasn't funny. I'm drunk. <laughs> you go ahead and talk. Uh-oh. Matt's getting offended. My ibuprofen stuff hasn't kicked in yet. <laughs> that sounds like a concern. Well, I don't want a headache, you know. Do you feel a migraine coming on right now? Migraine relief. That's what it was. It was the... It was the generic Excedrin stuff, you know, so it's aspirin, acetaminophen, and caffeine. It's good stuff, dude, because I had a headache this big. <laughs> How big is this? Uh, you can't see it, It's but uh, if you're old like me, you'll get the joke, because, you know, that's from the old Excedrin commercials. <sighs> <laughs> Next up for me is one-two punch here. Real quick, American Sniper has become the highest-grossing film of 2014. It beat out Gardens of the Galaxy, which had made $337.2 million, as well as The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, which has made $336.9 million. That's right, and American Sniper has so far made $337.2 million. Exciting stuff. Uh, Next part of this little article here is kind of the letdown of this one-two punch here. From an article via SlashFilm.com, so far 2015 has been historic for box office bombs. This is written by Jermaine Lucier. And yeah, this is kind of interesting. I'll read uh, some of the stats that they have here. So this year we have 2015. So far we've had Jupiter Ascending, Seventh Son, Black Hat, Mordecai, and Strange Magic. Those movies were box office bombs. Jupiter Ascending lost 127 million. Seventh Son lost 79 million. Black Hat lost 63 million. Mordecai 63 million, and Strange Magic lost 30 million dollars. Which all that comes out to 362 million dollars. This time in 2014. We had Pompeii, which lost $77 million. Legends of Hercules, which lost $52. Winter's Tale lost 50, uh, 48. 
I, Frankenstein lost 46 and RoboCop lost 42 million, which came out to be 265 million dollars that was lost in total. However, this article asks, what about the years before that? The losses in 2013 were 138 million. 2012 was 76 million, and 2011 was 115 million. So the difference between 2015 and previous years is rather staggering. Again, 2015 so far has lost 362 million dollars. Wow. Now, is this um, just domestic? Sounds like these are domestic numbers, because I'm pretty sure Guardians of the Galaxy got pretty damn close to a billion dollars worldwide, didn't it? Well, yeah, well, yeah, but this is the amount of money that was lost by each of these right, movies. Right, but you were you were talking at first, though, the domestic numbers for... Oh, American like Sniper. Ga- and American Sniper, these were just domestic numbers? Correct. And and so, but are the losses only against domestic numbers, or are the losses against the worldwide total? Uh, this is only based on the domestic box office. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I have two more news stories, and they're pretty fast, so I'm just going to do one, and I don't... Do you still have something left? Yeah, I can have something left. Yeah, you can. All right. Well, then I'm going to do this one from MSN.com via the Associated Press by Tammy Abdallah and Lynn Elber of the Associated Press. Harrison Ford's love of flight marked by mishaps and service. Uh, basically, this is referring to his crash last week in an airplane. Um, he, he was flying a vintage World War II aircraft. It stalled out shortly after taking off from the airport, and he had the good fortune to land, crash land, what have you, uh, on a golf course where he was pulled from the wreckage uh, by bystanders because they were worried that the you know plane might catch fire or something like that and then of course it's a golf course so naturally there were doctors there and they were able to you know kind of perform some on the spot triage until they were able to get him uh by all accounts you know it doesn't seem that he's done anything uh wrong it was just an accident nobody was hurt he aside from himself uh which is both fortunate for all of the people around that no one else was hurt they're actually crediting his good piloting skills for no one else being hurt and then of course a bummer for him because yes he was hurt but the prognosis for him is good however you know we we often have discussions in life amongst our friends or whatever about the elderly getting their driver's licenses taken away from them and Harrison Ford is 72 and he's been having a rough go of it. He broke his ankle a few months back. Uh, now he's, you know, crashed. I mean, you got to wonder, um, is age actually catching up to our hero? Can Indy truly age? Is, is, is Han, you know, going out for one more solo? I don't know. I certainly hope not. Because I still think he's pretty badass. Indy looks pretty good, too. He doesn't look bad. Uh, I'm telling you what. I mean, if I could look that good at 72, well, I guess I would just look that good at 72. (sighs) Anyway, what else you got? All righty, last up for the news is from io9.com. No, last up for your news. I still have Toy Story shit. Oh, 
bad news from Toy Story World. Sorry. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, last up for my news, I'll make my <laughs> three squirts going to be pretty short. From io9, X-rated films that are actually legit science fiction and fantasy. Not safe for work, this article, so uh, you can look at it if you want. And this is kind of interesting. It says that since the dawn of porn, X-rated movies have tackled science fiction and fantasy themes. We've listed hundreds of science fictional porn movies in the past, but most of the time, when porn goes sci-fi, it ventures into spoof territory. But not always. Here are some X-rated films that have actual merit as science fiction. And I'm not going to read all of them, but there are a couple here. For example, from 1971, you have W.R. Mysteries of the Organism. The film by Yugoslavian director Dusan Nahekšević is partly a strange X-rated documentary about fringe sex clubs and partly an examination of the real-life scientific theories of rogue sexologist Wilhelm Reich, who believed that you could capture sex energy, or orgones, <laughs> there's quotes there, orgones, in special, air quotes, orgone boxes. In Mashekhrich's fictionalized account, sexual liberation sweeps through a small Eastern European communist country and destabilizes its repressive regime. Notable for having long sequences where women make plaster casts of erect penises, to list W.R. as a great movie will stir outrage from some, end quote, wrote Roger Ebert, who nevertheless praised it for its anarchic view of sex and weird science. That's fun. In this list, there are going to be a few that you might have, uh, that you know, that seem familiar. Blood of Dracula, or Blood for Dracula, is one that I've heard before. Uh, it also talks about Evil Dead, uh, and how uh, they've had to recut that movie from receiving uh, an X rating at one point. And it goes to show, you know, they talk about why it received the rating initially. You also have Reanimator from 1985. It, it, the original cut of the movie was unable to receive an R rating. And again, it goes into details about what it all had to cut out of the movie. It also talks about Robocop and Total Recall at, as well, which apparently one of those movies had to go back to the MPAA over 18 times in order for it to finally receive an R rating. However, I do want to read this little blurb here about Night Dreams from 1981. Co-written by Jerry Stahl, this horror porn film won a bunch of awards. It features scientists who use electricity to induce a woman to have strange erotic dreams, including having sex with a man inside of a cream of wheat box. Highly recommended. So yeah, check out this article for the few for the uh, for the complete list here from io9 again, X-rated films that are actually legit science fiction and fantasy. Wow. Okay. And finally, uh, skunkandburningtires.com, courtesy of Jew-Osh-M. Toy Story 4, quote, is not a continuation of Toy Story 3, quote, will not focus on interaction between characters and children, end quotes there. Um, yeah, this comes to us from uh, Pixar president Jim Morris uh, when he was discussing this with DisneyLatino.com. Uh, I just cannot believe that this is what they're doing. Um, 
Here's what it says. We will hold our third table reading in a few days. It is evolving very well. We are putting together a very nice story. It is not a continuation of the end of the Toy Story of the story of Toy Story 3. It will be a love story. It will be a romantic comedy. It will not focus on the interaction between the characters and children. I think it will be a very good movie. I'm going to just go ahead and stop there and the quote there. It goes on to talk about a little bit more about why he's going into that, but I don't see how this can be anything but a cash grab at this point. I, I just um, his his last line that's quoted here is quote Fortunately, our films are successful, and we do not have to exploit doing sequels to earn money. It's not about that. It is an idea that arouses enthusiasm. End quote. There, I I, di- I disagree. I I sincerely and wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, Tim, do you have any comment on this little wrap-up story here? It better be good. Uh, we'll see. We will see. All right, so that does conclude the news, and will bring us to Three Square. <laughs> Yes. So, The Three Squared is we're going to talk about our favorite works of Leonard Nimoy. Um, we uh, definitely didn't just pick films he had been in. We have covered stuff that he may or may not have directed. Things that um, he also may have starred and or wrote in. Um, because he really was prolific in the amount of art that he generated. And of course, he was great with poetry. Lots of photography as well. Um Please feel free to Google that. Check that stuff out. It's really neat stuff. Um, maybe not Legend of Bilbo Baggins or whatever, but uh, hey, to each their own. Um, for me, though, I am going to focus on uh, two movies and actually a TV appearance, uh, or appearances, rather, uh, that he had done for one particular series, not Star Trek. Uh, the first one for me, and this is in no particular order, uh, is arguably the best Star Trek movie of the original cast. Um, I'm sure there, there, there's always room for interpretation and debate, but this is generally considered to be about the best of the original franchise. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, from 1986. This is a film that, of course, uh, was directed by... Uh, Leonard Nimoy, and then of course stars Leonard Nimoy as Spock, but it was also based on a story by Leonard Nimoy. Uh, it w- the screenplay was not written by Leonard Nimoy, uh, but for the story, Leonard Nimoy and Harv Bennett teamed up, and I again we were discussing. Uh, Tim had been bringing this up earlier, um, and it's just this is of course after takes takes place after Spock has been rescued. Um, from Star Trek Through the Search for Spock, and the crew is basically in trouble. <laughs> They're about to go to the woodshed for the events of Star Trek Three, but un- but fortunately, unfortunately, a unknown log being from space uh, needs to communicate with some humpback whales, and they have, of course, are extinct in the future that is the Star Trek universe, so they have to go back in time to try and get some humpback whales and bring them back and save the world. 
Um, they do so with some inventive slingshot time travel using the sun and the stolen bird of prey. And uh, hijinks ensue. Um, fun is had, thrills, chills, laughs, tears, the whole nine yards, and definitely a lot of fun. I, this is a great movie. If you are, even if you are not a fan of Star Trek, if you have found yourself sitting here, you chances are you have enjoyed this film, and it really does go to show just exactly the creative mind that went in that that was displayed. Uh, not just in the characterization of Spock, but the way that Leonard Nimoy could approach this subject material and bring such great performances to life. Uh, He actually follows this up in my second choice from 1987, his directorial uh, project, Three Men and a Baby. This movie is something that has generally been favorably reviewed by critics, um, uh, Roger Ebert gave it a three out of four stars and said that it basically it said that there were some flaws, but the performances were good enough to create an enduring movie. And this is a film that made on an $11 million budget that turned around and made over $160 million. This was Disney's first live action film that actually made over a hundred million bucks. Um, and I, I mean, this was, it was a phenomenon at the time and definitely kept the sales, kept the wind in the sails of the careers of both Steve Gutenberg and Ted Danson. And just a fantastic movie all the way around. This is, of course, three successful bachelors in New York who are saddled with a baby and a, um, and a package of heroin. How does that all work out? What's going to happen? What plays out? Who wins? Who survives? Watch that movie if you haven't yet. It's a great story and a lot of fun and very heartwarming and definitely very 80s. Last but not least for me is the role of William Bell played by Leonard Nimoy in the uh, arc uh, that he had as the founder of Massive, Massive Dynamic in... Fringe, the TV series. Now, uh, whether or not you are familiar with this, this has definitely had a cult following, and the, there are a lot of people who watched it from the beginning all the way to the very end. And regardless of where you feel or where you land on the series as a whole, just the sheer presence that Nimoy brought to the character of William Bell um, really lent credence to the conspiracy and to the alternate timelines that were being done, but in such a way that it didn't quite have that lost vibe. It, it had its own vibe and way to go. And of course the technology that that was used and some of the special effects and things that were done uh, for certain voiceovers and, and things of that, I don't want to give too much away really just gave Nimoy a, a chance to flex a whole lot of different muscles and it was just a lot of fun to watch very creative and just awesome to see him in this role and to watch how this particular character had such a profound effect on this series all the way throughout and I mean he only was in 11 episodes out of the whole thing so that in and of itself just is kind of an impetus to really 
take this series by the horns and watch it and see and and enjoy how it plays out. So, uh, again, for me, from 1986, Star Trek The Voyage Home. From 1987, Three Men and a Baby. And, of course, the television series Fringe from 2008 to 2013. All right, sir, what do you got? I chose three movies that that Nimoy directed. However, I got to say that Nimoy wasn't the greatest director, and I kind of think he just had a great team of actors and producers and people to help make everything work. And I say that because you watch some of his movies, and like especially with Star Trek, you, you get the feel of, of his direction and the pacing of the movie and the little quirks that he... Uh, that he includes in his filmmaking, and then you see him incorporate that as well to Three Men and the Baby and uh, his other films as well. However, with his two other films, his type of filmmaking didn't really come across as as great as it did with the Star Trek films. Uh, but the first one I'm going to mention is Three Men and a Baby from 1987. My, uh, I was going to call him Mike, but Matt already talked about it. Uh, it is very 80s. To me, I think it's the char- the the performances. Tom Selleck carries this movie for the most part. He is great. They should have just lost that freaking drug storyline, the heroin storyline. And uh, to me, I thought it would have been a more complete movie of you know just strictly about these three guys raising this girl. You didn't have to have all that other all that other bullshit. The second movie is from 1988. And it's entitled The Good Mother. And this is actually with Diane Keaton and Liam Neeson. And I haven't seen this movie in years. And I remember watching this back in the day, uh, early to mid-90s. And uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. I thought Diane Keaton's performance was really good. And The Good Mother is about a husband and wife going through a custody battle over over their daughter. And... What's interesting about it is that the father thinks he's actually going to get the baby because the mother has been exposing the daughter to, I mean, not really the greatest stuff pertaining to her and her new boyfriend. And this one, again, is directed by Leonard Nimoy. This was a hard one for for me to choose because what I remember as a kid, I enjoyed it. Acting was great. I was going to watch it this past weekend, but I couldn't locate it anywhere, even to rent so I'm sure those of you who like to, you know, do a little digging for this movie, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. But it's a, it's an interesting one. I, I think it's definitely a one for people to check out, especially for good acting. Even if it is Diane Keaton's performance that, that carries this movie. Um, the next one for me is a Star Trek movie. That is right. From 1984, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Now, I personally, I think I, it's weird. Uh, Star Trek 3, Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 are three totally different movies. To me, one of the best trilogies ever, because the events of Star Trek 2 leads into Star Trek 3, which leads into Star Trek 4, and there's a break until Star Trek 5, and all that stuff. One continuous storyline, and you needed somebody that knew the characters, that knew how to tell these stories, and who knew what the audience wanted to see, like who the fan base was. And Leonard Nimoy was the uh, was the right choice because Star Trek Three was a damn good movie. 
as well as Star Trek IV. Uh, one thing that I loved about Star Trek III was James Horner's score to the movie. There was a level of, of depth and emotion and characterization that you really didn't see up until Star Trek III. I mean, you definitely saw some of that stuff in Star Trek II, but this entire movie, you know, they're looking for Spock, you know, they're trying to figure out the Genesis planet, they're trying to outrun the Klingons and all this jazz. And I liked how Leonard Nimoy was able to handle the the emotion, the drama, and the action without any of it really eclipsing each other or, or or with one of them not trying to take precedent over each other and that's another that's how i feel with uh, three men and a baby as well is that yeah you do have the heroin drug action stuff thrown into this uh, charming story about three bachelors raising a baby but how he handles the movie is it's it's not outright ridiculous and stupid trust me the 80s itself takes care of that with any 80s movie that decade puts its stamp on that film. And that's what it does. But with the Star Trek movies, close to being flawless. Because they're just... They're fun. To me, that is what entertaining sci-fi action is. It's fun stuff. So, tip of the hat to Leonard Nimoy for pulling it off with Star Trek Three as well as Star Trek Four. So, my three films again are... The Good Mother from 1988... Three Men and a Baby from 1987, and finally Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock from 1984. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so that does bring us to Three Squared. Next week, uh, for our bonus segment, we are going to have a masterpiece discussion, and we're going to be discussing Life After Pi. And this is uh, a 30-minute... Um, not a documentary exactly, but uh, let's say an expose on the special ef- on, on the special effects industry, specifically the VFX industry and CGI uh, on the whole, and the plight of the studios to try and stay open in the current environment, and how the jobs are moving away, and and in some ways coming full circle, but not in a constructive way. And it does more along, more, more or less center on the VFX studio that did the effects for Life of Pi, winning the Oscar for the VFX and simultaneously closing while winning all these awards. Um, so that you can find that on YouTube. It's called Life After Pi, and we're going to be discussing that next week. And now, without further ado, it is, of course, time for the movie. <laughs> Yes, so this week's movies are Enemy from 2013, Horns, and An American Crime. So, Tim, where would you like to start? How about um, An American Crime? Okay, An American Crime. Now, this movie is one of those movies that is so amazingly well done that I both that I that I simultaneously love and hate uh the antagonist the 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 actress in this particular instance who played the antagonist um Catherine Keener stars in this film along with Ellen Page and it is based on the 
um, oh good lord, I can't think of the name of the case off the top of my head. Base, I think it's Ben um, Benazuski versus Indiana in 1966, which is covering the murder, the torture and murder of a young girl by the name of Sylvia Likens by a housewife, uh, Gertrude Benazuski. Um, and sadly, not just this woman, but her children and neighborhood kids. Um, who, yeah, it, it, this is a pretty fucked up thing. And now it goes... It, the one thing that I thought was really interesting was they tell you up front that this is a dramatization of this particular case. However, it then goes on to say all courtroom testimony is pulled directly from the court transcripts, which means when they cut to a courtroom scene, this is exactly what was said in real life. So I think that that is really kind of cool. And I also like how they use the courtroom scenes to not necessarily break tension as this thriller is playing out, but to let your imagination do the job it's supposed to do. You don't need all the gore. You don't need all the blood. You don't need all the graphic stuff to go on. Your mind can do that job for you. And the courtroom testimony is enough to drive everything home. This is the story of two young ladies, uh, Sylvia and Jenny Likens, who grew up with their parents who were basically carnies and uh their parents need to leave them to in order to go on the road um so they basically pick a relative stranger gertrude benazuski who has more kids than she can handle is not really doing too well physically and definitely coming a little bit unhinged mentally uh, due to all the stress of everything, she seems to have a predilection towards younger men. And when money frustrations push her over the edge, she begins to take it out on these two girls who she is supposed to be babysitting and being paid weekly for. Um, ultimately, the focus of the beatings comes to Sylvia Likens, played by Ellen Page. Uh, again, Gertrude is played by Catherine Keener. And everything kind of plays out from there. This is based on a true story. Again, from 1965 is when it, the events happened. Uh, the court case was in 1966. I, I literally both love and hate Catherine Keener. Um, she does such an amazing job of playing this role that I don't know how I'm going to watch her in something else. It's going to take me a while to be able to divorce myself from having viewed this and viewed her playing this role to moving on to something else. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I, I cannot stress enough. That is not a bad thing. I just, I really think that's just how good of a job she did. Um, Ellen Page, 
um, does a does a fantastic job, but I think that given the nature of the role that she was playing, there just really wasn't a lot of depth that she was able to show. Um, she does a good job with the range of the character that she was given, but you're take you're talking about someone who in real life was basically taken advantage of and beaten, um, arguably raped, and eventually tortured to death. So. Um, you can imagine the psychological stuff that would go on in that, then there's not really much you can do with it. Um, but she still does a great job with that. I just think that the focus of the uh, of the character drive that is shown in this film and expertly, I think, prompted is courtesy of the director, Tommy O'Haver. The one thing that I don't like... And really, the only thing that hurts this movie, in my opinion, is the angle from which they tell the story. And basically, they they tell it from Sylvia's point of view. And th- th- that's given to you right at the beginning of the film. Uh, so, so no, don't worry, no spoiler on that. But... In doing so, by the time you get to the end of the film, it it leaves too much for dramatic license to be taken. And I felt that the dramatic license at the end, especially in the last, really in the last three or four minutes, um, was kind of taken to the extreme and more or less kind of beating you over the head with it. And it really broke all of the rhythm, all of the payoff, everything that you've been watching for this entire film. Um, And especially the last few lines, it just seemed like it was kind of taking purposeful and unnecessary digs at religion as a whole. And I'm not saying that that's good or bad or indifferent, but for me, I felt, I felt it was unnecessary. Um, and I think that the movie would have been better served telling it from perhaps Jenny's perspective or maybe even not from that perspective at all, but simply to remove that narrative and just simply let the movie play out as it was playing out, regardless of the narrative that you're being that is being told from. Um, so for that reason and for that reason only, I pulled out half a star. But other than that, this movie is fantastic. Uh, it's difficult to watch, but in a good way because it's so gripping, but just really hard to watch in terms of just, you kind of hate humanity for a few minutes. Um, but four and a half stars, great movie. Just wow. 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 What do you got, Tim? Yeah, the performances were really good with this movie. However, I thought the main faults was with the filmmaking. I, too, uh, felt like that. I was having a difficult time trying to figure out who this, who the main focus was. Was it Sylvia? Was it Catherine Keener's character? Was it the other sister? Who was it? Because it keeps going back to different perspectives throughout the movie to where it kind of takes me out of the, uh, uh, out of the tension um, and I'm not talking about the tension of the story itself, because the the story itself is so ridiculous, so baffling, so horrific that you can't help but but feel what is going on. But the tension of the performances itself, especially uh, Sylvia, the character Sylvia, p- uh, played by Ellen Page, everything that she's going 
through. Now, I know that they left some stuff out of the movie. However, though the stuff they left out was very graphic, was horrific, was more, I mean, is, is worse than the stuff that you, that you do kind of sort of see in the movie. And believe it or not, you really don't see all that much. I mean, a lot of stuff is hinted towards, but the camera cuts away a lot. Yeah, there, there's a lot of long shots, but you really don't get the, you know, get, get the full sense of, of, of the pain that she's going through. And I'm not talking about, I don't want to see her uh, getting burned. I don't want, I don't want to see the scolding water being thrown on her. I don't want to see every, any, like, I don't want to see specifics, for example, like visual specifics, but I needed something more to, uh, to, 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 you know, so something more powerful to convey the emotion and exactly the horrific nature of what was going on. Because honestly, I felt what I was getting was kind of the watered down lifetime, uh, lifetime treatment. Because they do kind of go into like the lifetime tropes of, all right, we're gonna do this misleading act to make you think one thing, but really this is what's going on. And oh, she's going through so much pain. Let's convey this by crying uh by doing this little cut shot or you know or, or with the music swelling or you know just stuff like that i thought there could have been more to the movie to where you didn't need any of the fluffy imaginative stuff that the movie uh made some use of and again i'm not knocking the performances i thought the 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 actors were cast uh virtually perfectly i mean there were a couple that were not so good uh, I thought the kids were really good. I wanted to punch every single one of those kids in the fucking face, including that little boy. I wanted to break his glasses and punch him. Um, and so with that, I can't... I mean, I, I, I did not not... Wait. I did not not enjoy this movie. There we go. So I will have to give it three stars. Uh, everything that I had uh, uh, had problems with... You know, that was two-star worthy. But it was still interesting, especially for the performances and the story alone. So I definitely recommend it. Right on, right on, sir. All right, so where do you want to go from here? Horns. Horns, okay. Horns, 2013 American dark fantasy thriller film. Directed by Alexandre Aha. And it is loosely based on Joe Hill's novel of the same name. Daniel Radcliffe stars in this film. Uh, there's quite a lot of people in this film. I was uh, definitely, I, I thought it was really cool to see James Remar in this film. Heather Graham as well. And this is basically a film about a guy named Ig who becomes the prime suspect of his girlfriend's murder. And he knows he didn't do it, but he wishes that... He, he kind of wishes that a curse would befall anyone who did do it so that, you know, we would all know who it is. And then shortly after he kind of makes this wish to curse someone, he grows horns. And while people can see the horns, they're not put off by the horns. As a matter of fact, the horns kind of bring out their deepest, darkest desires, self-destructive and self-loathing desires. And 
he begins to use these uh, as a way to both have fun, extricate himself from the situation to a certain degree, and investigate the murder to his own ends. Um, there are some twists and turns that, for the most part, you can see coming about a mile away. Uh, it is still rather, um, I don't want to say riotous, but it is irreverent. That's the word I want to use. There's a lot of irreverent things going on. Um, and of course, like any kind of dark fantasy horror-ish kind of things, you get the you get the typical nudity tropes and some sex and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing I'll give this movie is that it really does try to be more than the sum of its parts. It does attempt to tell a unique story in an outlandish way, but bring some real theatrical elements to it. The problem is, is that the story itself is just way too outlandish that it's, it makes it really difficult for it to take, to be taken seriously, even though there are elements to the movie that are good. I think the other thing that really hurts this film is that it is just so desperately predictable. And as something unfolds that you more or less saw coming a mile away, it then takes that unfolding and just unfurls it till it just won't stop. Um, the movie takes it, and it does take it to its logical conclusion. Um, and even though it has these flaws... For me, the movie is still fun it, it, because of its irreverence, because of its outlandishness, and because there is some, I thought, some pretty damn good acting from Daniel Radcliffe. Pretty much just Daniel Radcliffe, but enough that I thought it carried the movie enough to, for me to enjoy it. So, all in all, it's got its flaws. This is by no means the best movie in the world, but it was a likable movie. Three and a half stars, definitely enjoyed it, and it is interesting, to say the least. Three and a half stars. Well, you're going to love this one-star review, Four Horns. <laughs> <laughs> I now understand, after watching this movie, the importance of casting uh, good actors, talented actors, to be in your movie. Because if your movie absolutely sucks, in order to get that one star... You're banking on those good performances. And luckily, Daniel Radcliffe, I think, is a pretty good actor. A, a damn good actor. Damn fine actor. Uh, as well as, I, I forget his name, but he plays his brother. He was in Across uh, the Universe. I thought, I always, everything, every time I see him in a movie, I thought he, you know, he does a good job as well. But to me, this is what this movie, only what this movie has going for it. It's juvenile when it comes to the sexiness, when there is some sort of sexiness and humor to it, it's just so fucking juvenile. Now, if if there were bits and pieces of the humor or the sexiness of the movie where it's like, okay, well, it goes a little over the top, sure, why not? But the entire movie is so fucking juvenile. I, it was, I, okay, I, I've never bitched openly about a movie as much as I've had with this movie since we've watched Transformers 4. 
that's how much I didn't care about this movie. And I normally don't say that at all, because I try to find the good in the movie. I try to see why other people like it, um, why it might have a following, you know, the type of director it is, what the director was trying to uh, convey through the film, and I couldn't find anything at all, except that Harry, that Daniel Radcliffe was in the movie and he did a good job. Um, again, I mean, it just really, that's my only complaint. It just stays on such a juvenile level that you cannot take any of the horror or any of the if you can call them dramatic elephant, got elephants, any of the dramatic elements, elements, seriously. So that is why I give this one one star. Uh, It could be 0.75. I have seen worse things than this, but yeah, one star for me. Okay. Well, that's got to be fun when the average on this movie is two and a a quarter stars. (laughs) But, hey, you know, you can always let us know what you think. That's always fun. Uh, Let's see here. Last but not least, then, is going to bring us to Enemy. 2013 Canadian-Spanish psychological thriller film uh, directed by Denis Villanueva and stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Melanie Lawrence, Sarah Gordon, and Isabella Rossellini. Um, Basically, we have Gyllenhaal, who is playing dual roles here, a guy by the name of Adam and a guy by the name of Anthony. Now, Adam is more of a straight-laced, uh, average Joe, and Anthony is kind of a uh, seedy, creepy actor type. Uh, the interesting thing is, is while they are two completely different people, they look exactly alike. All the way, I mean, exactly alike. And the story follows how these two characters, um, these two people, come to know of one another how they inter intersect with each other interact while they intersect and then kind of go on these separate tangents now um there is an element to this film uh a spider and i won't say any more than that because it is something that as tim and i have found uh discussing the film pre-show it is definitely open to interpretation, and so I don't want to give away any more than that if you are interested in seeing this movie. Um, but this is probably my favorite performance by Jake Gyllenhaal. And I know I really liked him in End of Watch. I thought he was great in Nightcrawler. Um, I liked it more in End of Watch, but... I mean, I think this one is really cool. I just think that the the complete differences in the characters that he played was really cool. Um, But I think that in this movie's reach to be different and to be open to interpretation, I think it will leave people wondering. Like, I, I honestly... I made what sense of it that I could when it came to the spider. Uh, and But I, I, I did. I had to ask Tim. Maybe it was all the alcohol. But I did have to ask Tim. And so it was good because we were able to have that discussion. Um, but I think that with something like that, you have to be careful that you create something that is at least feasibly tieable in... Uh, 
table into what's going on uh, so that you aren't you aren't finding yourself making either unnecessary leaps or intuitive leaps that could lead you down the wrong road and then you're left with more questions than answers by the end. Uh, that being said, the film as a whole, I liked it um, and would recommend it and I bring that one in at 3.75 stars because I couldn't decide between 3.5 and, and 4. With this movie, Dennis Villanueva proves to be a versatile director before this, he actually did, well, I mean, he actually made this movie before Prisoners, but Prisoners came out before this movie. Totally different movie from this. Thoroughly enjoyed it, especially the second time I watched it. Once I realized, uh, because going into it, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know this was going to be a movie that you kind of had to de- decipher various like clues that you're that you, that you kind of have to go on go go hunting for because stuff isn't really thrown at you you have to watch it carefully and you have to pick stuff out and try putting it together and believe it or not there's not just one answer to everything but there are multiple answers to everything and to me that makes this movie that much more enjoyable and that much more important because this is a type of movie that exists beyond a single person's interpretation if you can leave the movie theater or leave leave a screening of the movie talking about it with other people i think that's a good thing especially talking about it positively and trying to decode the movie and then you can go back the next time and I, i honestly think that once you talk about it a little bit or think about it a little bit each additional viewing you will find something new about the movie it might even you know confuse you even more who knows but i think that's uh, that's that's definitely a big plus towards this movie there was a lot of thought that went into the making of this movie if you watch this movie uh, through amazon at the end of the movie you can catch a i think it's like a 10 minute interview between villanueva and uh, jake gyllenhaal about the making of the movie and you get an idea of what they were trying to create like what the thought process was behind the director as he was making the movie and doing the script for the movie. So again, a whole lot of thought, loads of layers. This movie is, I mean, there. this movie is littered with so many subtleties throughout. It is crazy. I mean, I cannot think of another movie that I've seen recently that has used subtleties to this level. And again, most importantly, this movie is left to interpretation. Now, I've made a ton of notes here. They all pertain to the meaning of the movie, but because most of you probably have not seen the movie, I will not talk about it. Maybe in a, in a future podcast or in a future episode, Matt and I can kind of uh, go more into detail about this film, because I think this is one that is, that is worth discussing, especially if we, if we bring other people. Maybe the We Are Not Here to Please You Guys on here to talk about it, or even the Knights, even. That might even be fun. I really liked it. I mean, I, I gave it w- one rating before I watched it again, so I'm kind of conflicted as to how I should rate it. 4.25. Who knows? It might change years from now once I watch it again. But right now, 4.25 <laughs> out of 5. Right on, right on. All right. Well, then I guess that does conclude the movies for this week. Next week's movies are going to be Chappie, Cinderella, and Maps to the Stars. So, I believe that brings us to the end of another episode, and it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. 
All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been mu- brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the slscast you can of course follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can even climb aboard the information superhighway surf on down and see if you can find tim on twitter and of course you can subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to leonard nimoy i get to say this I think about myself as like an ocean liner that's been going full speed for a long distance, and the captain pulls the throttle back all the way to stop, but the ship doesn't stop immediately, does it? It has its own momentum, and it keeps on going, and I'm very flattered that people are still finding me useful. And this is Tim saying we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.